Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and I'm here with Coach Chad Timmerman. Hello. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we're going to answer more of your coaching questions today. You can submit your questions to us at support at trainerroad.com and anything cycling, triathlon, coaching, whatever, any type of relation it has to that type of stuff, we'll answer it or we'll do our best to answer it. We get a lot of questions every week, so we answer as many as we can. Um, You can find this podcast on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever else you listen to your podcast. You can find us on there and leave us a five-star review. We love that. And without any further ado, let's get into it with John's question. John says, I'm new to Trainer Road, and after seven years in triathlon, I'm training for my first full-distance Ironman in May. I just started the full-distance build plan, and that's one of our training plans, and have been impressed with how comprehensive a training plan it is, including very detailed workouts for swim and run as well as bike. However, as I look ahead to the full-distance specialty plan, and for those that don't know, our, our training plans are broken up into three phases, and you piece them together Uh, to fit your situation better. So there's a base phase, a build phase, and a specialty phase. So he's heading into this specialty phase, and he says, as I look ahead to the full-distance specialty plan, the detail for the swim and run run workouts disappears. Do you have any plans to add in more detail for the specialty phase? Yeah, John, um, what it boils down to is I'm one man. So I'm I'm doing the best I can, and those are next in line. And in fact, I'm working on them right now. Sprint and Olympic is done. Um, those are coming next, uh, the half distance and full distance. And, um, the reason it's kind of taken a little longer than I anticipated is I figured I would just fold in some swim and run workouts in line with what came out of the, the base and build when in fact the cycling workouts don't jive as well as I hope they had, I hope they would. So I've basically had to rebuild these from scratch. So they're going to be all new plans and they're going to mesh really well with the pre-existing base and build tri plans. Exciting stuff. Stay tuned for that. Craig, I normally do my trainer road sessions during the week at night. This week, I have had appointments after work, so I've gotten up early before work to train. I noticed that my power numbers were lower than my normal training sessions. Does this make sense, or could it be an equipment issue? Yeah, Craig, this is interesting. Um, I'll let the other guys weigh in on this, but uh, from personal experience, I've uh, done a bit of research um, in months past, and I brushed up on it. This morning, um, and I'm going to tell you the reasons why I've actually cut my training over to the afternoon, my high intensity training. Um, so, th- so there's a whole lot of biological rhythms that take place on a, a circadian rhythm or circadian cycle, and uh, apparently this is called chronobiology. And, and and basically, it's pretty simple as it applies to endurance sports in that our performance kind of follows our internal heat mechanism. In that when you wake up in the morning, your body's in kind of a heat gain mode where it shunts blood away from the extremities and is more concerned with elevating core temperature. Whereas in the afternoon, it's more in in, in the evening, especially it's more in a a heat loss mode where the blood is start uh, more pushed away from the core, more out towards the extremities. You know, in the case of cycling and even running, obviously it's going to weigh more in your favor. Um, so it really kind of boils down to, um, and this is just one component. There are others like, uh, the endocrine response, or I'm sorry, endocrine or hormonal response. There are other things, but, um, there, there is a fair amount of science that supports that afternoon workouts are, are just higher in a general performance level level due to better, uh, body temperature regulation. Yeah. I remember, uh, um, when the Olympics were in China, there was a big hubbub about this because, <clears throat> excuse me, they had changed the, uh, the time when the swim would be like the prim- preliminaries that would be like kind of later in the afternoon mm-hmm. plus the time change and people were freaking out just because of what you said chad is all these people were used to 
doing these meets at a certain time and now they're going to switch it on people. Um, yeah, and that's I, another, that's another topic, the whole temporal specificity where, where you get used to working hard at, at a particular time of day. And there is some carryover on that level also. The, um, the other thing that I notice is, um, I'm, I big problems working out early in the morning. And one thing that I, I think it has to do, and Chad, maybe you can help me on this is, you know, I'm in a fasted state at night and then I wake up at 6am because I have to get up early to, you know, to make work on time. And I, I do an intense workout and I don't have time to, um, replace the glycogen in my muscles and my, my liver that have been used over, you know, while, while I've been sleeping. And then personally, I feel like lunchtime is probably the best time that I do, uh, workouts, do great workouts. Yeah. In terms of glycogen availability, there's typically enough to do a morning workout, especially a 60, 90 minutes is kind of pushing it. So I don't know that that would be the biggest limiter, but there is something to be said with working out in a fasted state. I, I, I can't say for sure that it works as well for me as it does for everybody or works as well for everybody else as it does for me. Yeah. I, I, I know I've, I've worked out in, in the morning pretty consistently for a while and I've switched over to doing it in the afternoon and midday now. Um, I, I've, per- and I, all of what Chad said, I think the only thing that I can weigh in on is the, the, the simple habit or, the, or what you've fallen into with your body. And your body does get used to it over time. That's one thing I can say. Chances are, Craig, in this sense, uh, this is probably jarring to your system on a number of different levels just to start training so early on in the morning. So I think that it would be somewhat abnormal to expect the, the response to be exactly the same right off the bat. Um, but uh, so it's don't don't worry about it. Uh, signifying anything else other than the fact that you're training at a different time and it's one that's bright and early. So it's pretty polarizing. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, familiarity or hormonal, hormonal or uh, body temperature associated, I can speak personally that I've actually had noticeably better workouts, saving them for later in the afternoon than when, than when I would try to do them straight out of bed in the morning. Wasn't there some research too, Chad, we just saw where people were doing, um, high intensity interval training at night and then not eating and then sleeping in a fasted state and that then kind of helping yeah. it was encouraging i think different aerobic uh, adaptation improved aerobic adapt- adaptation as well as uh, fat loss metabolism so they were seeing both improvements in their aerobic activity or capabilities and their fat loss i think they um called it in the article sleeping low sleeping with mm-hmm. low glycogen mm-hmm. and then yeah, your body training high sleeping low in, in terms of glycogen yeah, yeah everything's being tested like that. <laughs> so if well, you search the, enough, you'll find anybody doing the, that. The hard part is, of it too is, and what all listeners here should be aware of is just because there's like one study that shows something, mm-hmm. don't like change your training because of that. There has to be years of research because there is a study that shows anything Everything, you want. Yep. There, um, <laughs> I forgot, you know, and there's so many, there's correlation and causation. So uh, cities that have more cops have higher crime. Therefore, cops cause crime right that, that, that's not <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's that's what you call a correlation not causation um uh, there's a blog by nate silver um 538 that does some great stuff where they say they can pull out even core um they can pull out correlations for all these things like any belly buttons vote a certain way and, and there's just <laughs> just just take all those like articles that you read that are um kind of like buzzfeedish with a grain of salt yes not don't don't change everything you do. Look at the stuff that's been proven for years. And and even studies and everything else. Uh, keep in mind that in many cases, those studies are are trying to prove or disprove a certain theory or, or point. So um, you have to view it in that context. Yeah, who's doing it, right? My sister, exactly. um, she's a scientist. She has a PhD from Johns Hopkins, and she does uh, 
I always did I say John Hopkins or Johns Hopkins? I always forget which one. But anyway, <laughs> she does tobacco research, and depending on into the tobacco research area, who funds your study, there are different outcomes all the time, mm. right? <laughs> and it happens yep. too in um, cycling. Depends on you know if uh, if you believe in uh, your product is I don't know eating pure glucose like you have a study that shows that eating pure glucose is better than eating a different kind of carbohydrate it's yeah what um, you do if you're that company is you don't look for a study that shows the effects of, of of a high concentration of glucose in your diet what you do is you search for one that proves that glucose is effective as you know a replacement for everything else yep mm-hmm. it's it's just you have to keep that in mind and and like chad said and chad's always digging into different studies he's always trying to get the most well-rounded perspective on all of these issues by looking at a bunch of different ones so yeah i find that the studies i trust the most are the ones that obviously try to refute their own hypothesis they're not trying to back it up they're actually trying to break it they're trying to disprove it and and in doing so you know when they can't disprove it it becomes that much hardier and more believable it's uh johns hopkins that's what i johns yeah. i have bachelor's <laughs> that's it <laughs> <laughs> all right ben uh, right now i have an adventure slash gravel slash touring road bike it's amazing how that whole genre is just kind of being bled into one um <laughs> with a fairly upright geometry um, what he's talking about it upright, that means that the forks aren't sticking far out in front of him and that his seat tube isn't angled way back. That's what he means on upright geometry. Um, I'm thinking about getting a more race-oriented road bike. I read that shorter chain stays, so putting your wheel underneath your seat more, higher bottom brackets, and steeper seat tube and head tube angles all result in a faster bike where more of your power is transferred to speed on the road. I feel like this might be a ridiculous question, he says. Uh, but can a racier bike geometry lead to a high or lead to higher power numbers on the trainer? Uh, sure, I'll weigh in on this first. But this is a better question for our, our tech guru, Jonathan. Uh, absolutely. I think of this in terms of like a life cycle in a gym where you're very upright. You're only going to be able to crank out so much power, and you carry that over to a road bike with a slightly more aggressive. Uh, uh, configuration and and it's just easier to put more power to the pedals then think about a time trial bike where it pushes you just a little more forward over your bottom bracket into yet another more powerful if less comfortable position so absolutely yeah triathletes deal with this all the time so uh if you're in your aero bars in a tt position your hip angles close and it's much harder to put out the same power that you have that you that you have on your road bike and you know just in the drops it can be harder to put out power and in our workouts, we have workouts specifically designed to help practice that because, um, you can get some, just like your TT bike, you get some adaption to put out more power. And, uh, it's there are definitely more, there are positions optimized to give the most power. And I was just pointing to, uh, Jonathan, cause Jonathan is our tech guru. He will, I'm sure have an amazing answer about <laughs> how many millimeters is the best one for each position. No, no millimeters at all, but um, this is evident, and just to use examples of extremes, um, in the mountain bike world, we've got dropper posts, we've got suspension that locks out, we've got suspension that does that electronically, everything else, right? And really what they're trying to do is like satisfy, satisfy this Jekyll and Hyde of descending, in other words, putting an emphasis on bike handling, and then ascending, putting an emphasis, er, an emphasis on efficiency. And um, what we see is that even though bikes that have a, a huge amount of suspension and really slacked out geometry... Even though they are climbing better What's than they ever have. What's slacked out geometry? Yeah, so slacked out means essentially that your head tube angle is going to be lower, uh, a lower number. Essentially, what that means is that your front wheel, if you're looking straight down onto your like through your stem of your fork there, 
your front wheel is going to be sticking out further in front of you, if that makes sense. So riding more like a chopper instead of like a normal motorcycle, if you were to think of it in that respect. So, and then also in relation to that, what happens is that your seat tube, so the, the part of your frame that goes straight up from the bottom bracket up to your seat, that also leans back. So you get this whole bike that's canted backwards. It shifts your body weight back and everything else. And they're doing this and the bikes descend incredibly well and they're giving them really long suspension and they do climb well, but they absolutely rob you of power. And what a lot of people think is the suspension design robs you of power. And it's also really difficult because they just want to wheelie the whole time up the hill because you're leaning so far back. But the actual geometry where you're placed on the bike, as you guys pointed out, that robs power. Um, being more forward like that in front of your bottom bracket, being in a position where your hip angle isn't so closed off, that makes a huge difference. So yeah, you should see different numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can kind of, um, you see it too, if you're racing and you want to go really hard or you're teetine and you'll slide forward on your saddle, it just naturally mm -hmm. happens in the Tour de France. I remember, uh, Contador was doing a TT and on the forums, everyone's like, oh, he's poorly fit because he just keeps <laughs> sliding forward, sliding forward. Cause that's what feels good for him. It's probably his yeah. bike had two, um, too steep of a no not steep enough of a seat angle seat tube angle and if you look if you watch a, a fast race like a criterium and you watch guys who are, are coming unglued and they're getting tailed off the back you watch them they will be as, as far forward on their saddle as they can get because they're just hanging in there they're looking for that most uh least comfortable but but strongest position in a dire effort just to hang on and it can't be we can't just put saddles there all the time because then when you descended you'd go over the handlebars right you'd feel wacky. exactly right yeah. You just can't sit there for that long either. It's just not, it's too bunched up, too uncomfortable. We've talked yes. about this a lot, but Jonathan, I so, so I have, um, I'm a tall guy and I have the largest size specialized frame on my Venge and I have my seat post maxed out. The top tube's too long for me, but what I really want is a dropper post for road that goes low. So when I go into a big descent, like I've done it where I've gone mm -hmm. down, we have some really nice long, you know, 20 minute descents here in Reno. My seat will, will fall like my, uh, it wasn't tightened down enough and I've gone down low. Oh, it feels like I'm on rails. Like it's amazing. Um, yeah, I can keep up. Well, with and also guys. you've got really long, you're not just a tall guy, but you've got really long legs too, Nate. Um, really yeah, long legs. It's hard. And the result is that you end up putting your center of gravity so much higher away from actually, you know, the, the ideally you'd pack all the weight into the bottom bracket, right. And pack yourself somehow into there yeah. too for handling. But that wouldn't make you very fast if you're trying to pedal. But if I could just <laughs> push a button in the seat, so what people don't know what dropper posts are, you push a button and the seat goes all the way, well, a certain percentage down and you push it again and you uh, take your weight off and it goes back up. I just got one of these on my fat bike for mountain biking and descending so much better. I feel, I feel wonderful. Um, but on the road, even if it, it was another pound, I would take it because I could totally make that time up on descents by just feeling comfortable and not, it's more enjoyable too, to ride. Right. And Jonathan, aren't yeah. some companies doing that dropper post now on road, Yeah, but only a little yeah, bit. I know. Specialized makes one that drops just a small amount. Um, but Thompson, I believe they make one that's, uh, for smaller diameter seat posts. However, if you've got a aero seat post and mast in any yeah. way, then that's tough. Right. But New bike you know, time. Think, yeah. <laughs> think about it though, like the dropper post bike. <laughs> think about Sagan and all these guys that are always down on the. And I, I, I employ this regularly. I, I'm if I'm descending, I'm on my, I'm on my top tube, and and I feel comfortable there. It, it doesn't feel comfortable for everybody, but I've also since I've got a tarmac, it's got a sloping top tube, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, if you have something like a Cannondale with a more traditional straight across high top tube, then it makes it a little tough sometimes to fit in between your seat and your in your frame, but 
you have a dropper post on your road bike, that gets rid of that whole problem, right? You can just drop your seat right down and everybody would be doing a super tuck. So yeah, you'd even go feeling fa- right. So like if you were so. going, uh, you know, I hit mid fifties on my road bike before and with being so high up there, you could go even faster if you had a dropper post and you'd feel a lot better. Your legs could hug the frame. Uh, yep. it would, it'd be awesome. Yeah. Hurry up innovators, make it happen. Um, <laughs> Dave, hi guys, loving the podcast. Some really good information. My question is regarding road and road versus turbo outputs. And by the way, when people say turbo, um, that they just mean trainer. They're probably from the UK, so that's what they call them over there. So, on the road, my son can drop me fairly easily, but on the turbo, I put out thirty watts more um, in FTP than him. So your FTP is higher. You don't mention weight in this one, Dave, so I'm not sure there. Um, it's the same when we race. He can string out elite riders and drop them. I don't really understand how he can put put out so much power in a race or training outdoors. Um, then when he does a turbo ride, he said it's like a totally different ride. So his question, is there any point in him training indoors as he is not riding to his limit? So first off, Dave, I'm going to assume that you guys are the same weight because 30 watts um, higher on your end of things. Uh, either way, if your weight's not equal, then that 30 watts doesn't count for uh, all that much. Yep. So if you guys are same weight and he's putting out more Watts outside and can't seem to do it inside, I'd have to go to the same go-to answer, which is it's probably not, he's probably not effectively cooled. I mean, there could be a question of motivation. Maybe he just doesn't dig riding indoors and, and there's a bit of a learning curve that goes with that. But, uh, if he's not well cooled then he's not gonna be able to perform to his uh, physiological potential, in which case now there isn't all that much purpose, uh, to him trying to push his limits or extend his limits riding indoors. So, um, check your environment. If you can bring the ambient temperature down, that's, what's one thing, but if you can put a couple big fans in front of him and, uh, cool him nearly as well as he's cooled outdoors, I bet you'll see a, a much more similarity in performance. Yeah. For fans in general, uh, at the company, we really like the, um, air King. It's like the air King 18 or 20 inch. We use in those fact- here. Something really quick, something quick on that. Last night we did a video shoot with a guy here at the office and we were here super late and we're doing the video shoot and I turned on the fan and he actually was like, that's too much, man. You need to turn it down. So (laughs) our model asked that. So yeah, they're very good. (laughs) Yeah. We, it has, uh, I mean, they get loud too. So obviously, but we just, we just talked about, yeah, I have noise canceling headphones when I do it and then it's awesome. Um, the other one, Dave, I'm thinking that you guys aren't going to be the same size, uh, just because it's, I, it sounds like you live with your son still. And if you live with him, he's unless he's younger. 18, yeah, he's probably a little bit smaller than you. But maybe not, though. I mean, the Height is the other thing uh, for weight. So if you could be pulling a lot more aerodynamic drag, he could also, uh, in races, have a better anaerobic work capacity to be able to drop you. Um, sprints, those are all stuff reaching. But I'm, I'd yeah, like I mean, to know. He's... Right back in, please, let us know. Are you guys like the exact same... They could be like genetic identicals, right? <laughs> Six <laughs> yeah, feet tall, know. 160. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, remember, if he's if you're heavier than him, you're going to have to have 30 watts more. You're going to have to have a 30-watt higher FTP, or not 30 yeah. specifically, but you're going to have to have a higher FTP to be able to keep up with him, you know? What it is. I mean, it, but in this case, it's you're saying that he drops you outside. So What we haven't said is it's power-to-weight ratio. So what you do is you take your um, your FTP in watts and then divide that by your weight in kilograms. So we've, 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 I don't think we've ever defined that in the podcast. We probably should have. Um, yeah, no, right? <laughs> um, but that tells you what your power to weight ratio is. And if you're, um, kind of like a elite, um, elite amateur would be around five Watts, uh, anything higher than that. And you're probably a lower level pro get up to six and you're in the, probably tour de France. 
Yeah. Um, fours, you're Definitely. fours, you're a solid rider. Like four, you're awesome. Threes, you're probably a triathlete, <laughs> but you can still or you can still do it. Good. I'd say I'd say threes. That's probably the largest chunk of yeah. people that mm-hmm. train regularly. You yep. know, they, wouldn't you say so, Chad? They they tend to fall yep. within there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, if you're experience. 3.0 to 3.9, somewhere in there. Yeah. And it's it's crazy what a difference it is between even like 3.3 3 to 3.5. Like even mm-hmm. getting those 0.2, you can beat your competition just on that. Uh, and if you're a triathlete and you are at 3.5, 3.7, you can be in the top bike splits. I think I, I got um, 16th amateur at a uh, half Ironman, and I was like at 3.5. But I was it was a flat Ironman. I was a bigger guy, so I had a... Um, a little bit of a advantage on a flat course, but man, if I was at four five, like, or you guys are at like four eight or four nine, if I was at mm-hmm. that, I, I mean, I would have been the top three guys in the whole race. It was crazy. The one thing I would add to this too, Dave, is your son. I'm going to assume that he's younger. Like Nate said, it sounds like you live with him, and if that's the case, he's younger. Sometimes riding indoors for young kids is really tough, man, or not young kids, but just young people because it's not as entertaining as riding outside for them. Um, but winning is way more entertaining than anything else. And he'll learn that soon. <laughs> and when you train indoors, you win more. So, um, so yeah, I, I, uh, those, I guess those are our thoughts. We'd need more information to provide a specific thing, but to your question, is there any point in him training indoors if he's not riding to his limit? Absolutely. There's a point to it. He has less distractions. He's safer. He has, there's a lot of great things to it. Um, and if he's not training to his limit, well, you're the dad. You know how to motivate him. So get him to yeah. get him to train harder. <laughs> I'd like to see, um, too, if he did an FTP test outside and inside. And there's probably going to be some wattage difference. But if his heart rate's similar inside and he's being properly cooled, just go. That John, that's a huge thing too with your kids. Yeah. Man, being out in the road, I don't want my son to be mm-hmm. a road racer. Uh, if he's going to get into bikes, mountain biking on some. Keep him know. off the roads. Yeah. There's just we every year here in Reno. We're a big cycling community. There's people get a couple people get heat every year, but it seems like one person dies every year. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Austin, firstly, just wanted to say that I love listening to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast and listen to it often. Keep up the great work. My question has to do with training for cycling events while also training for running events. And you specify a half marathon. My primary focus is road biking, but I also like to enter running races, but I'm more casual with it. A friend of mine recently told me that running actually hurts my cycling. I understand, or my cycling training, he says specifically. I understand that training for both sports means I will fatigue faster and I'll have less time to devote towards cycling specifically. What I was told, though, is that adding running to the mix actually makes me slower on the bike than if I dropped the running and kept my time spent on the bike the same. Is this true? And to what extent? I'm nowhere near maxed out in either sport. So for me, I think the difference would be negligible. Thoughts? Yeah, Austin, I think you've kind of captured what's important here and that um, less time or more time spent running means less time spent riding. Um, uh, that That's pretty straightforward. Uh, outside of that, the fitness gains you can get in running, um, the, the, the central ones, the ones that you know are heart and lung related. So if you do VO2 max intervals, on the run that could carry over to the bike, but it's just, the activity is not nearly as specific. So you can get to be quite a good runner. And I've seen some stellar runners hop on the bike and they've got nothing. They, they don't have the, the physiology is different. The, the biomechanics are different. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't carry. Um, fortunately it does kind of work the other way. I've seen strong riders take up running really well. So, um, sorry to say that a better runner doesn't necessarily make, make you a better rider. It can go the other way. But, uh, 
there's just not enough similarity between the the two in terms of what your muscles are actually doing. But if he's so if he's getting if he's being recovered and he's not going to train anymore, is the running going to actually make him slower? I'm thinking no, it's that, gonna, that it's I disagree with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's just especially if you're not, you know, completely focused on your cycling and, and entirely concerned with making yourself the best cyclist. It sounds like you're you're casual in respect to both these sports. So I, I say just do what you keep on doing and enjoy it. Um, but I, I don't see it coming at a detriment to your cycling. It, it will pull some time away from it, but that's up to you. You know, you don't have to give as much time to running as you do. You should just do some duathlons, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Destroy exactly. some folks. Yeah. You know, um, we just released a documentary this week on a cyclist, uh, by the name of Justin Rossi. Yes. It's awesome. By the way, check it out. It's on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Just look for trainer road. Then the documentary is called the chase. Um, he's an incredible cyclist. Like, I mean, he's a beast. The other day he rode for three hours and his average power, not normalized. His average power was 303 Watts for three hours. So for those of you guys that, that, that have any point of relevance with that, you'll, your, your jaw's probably a little bit open right now. Um, he's a beast and he's mostly a road cyclist, but he's actually been, been toying with the idea of training for triathlons. And he actually, he won the Malibu try in the fall last year, just pretty much off Second the couch try. St- type of yep. stuff. Second yeah. try ever. He's a beast, and his bike split was nuts. I don't remember what his bike split was on that, Nate. I don't know if you do, but it was impressive. Um, anyways, he's been incorporating more running into his training, and his riding is stronger than it's ever been, and if there's anybody that pushes to their limits with riding regarding their available training time and intensity and everything else, it's him. So, um, yeah, and it's not hurting his, his riding any, so... Um, yep. Uh, hopefully that's just an anecdotal thing that can help you out. Ben has a good question. I like this one. Cause I think mm-hmm. a lot of people probably have this question this too. Is a good one. Mm-hmm. He says, did I cheat on my 20 minute test? That's the question. Hopefully he didn't cheat. Um, but we'll look into it. He says, I, I just took a week off due to a neck injury, which isn't affecting my riding. Luckily that week coincided with the recovery week and the sustained power build low volume plan. I thought I'd be really refreshed coming back and doing the 20-minute test, but instead I had really low energy. I was even struggling in the five-minute warm-up. My heart rate went way up to max and didn't come down as normal in the rest period. I almost called it a day, but I decided to give it a go and push through at least five minutes of the 20-minute test. I was struggling to even hold the target power for my existing FTP. I just couldn't hold the cadence. So I tried kicking down a gear and pushing a lower cadence. I actually got really good power with this, but I couldn't hold it. So I gutted out the rest of the test by doing 30 seconds of high cadence at the target power and 30 seconds of low cadence at higher power. It worked, and I pulled my FTP up 4 watts on a day I felt terrible. But it doesn't feel like the way that I, that I meant to be doing the test. Did I cheat? Do you want me to go into the next tips chat, or do we want to stop? No, let, let's cover that in a minute. Um, first off, Ben, there's two things here. Um, one, you're underperformance, you know, coming out of a recovery week, you think you'd be fresh and really ready to hit it. And I actually just addressed this on a, I think a blog post or a forum post or something. And, and my advice was, uh, you, you get a little uh, away from suffering and it's, it's more detrimental than I'd like to admit. You, you kind of lose touch with what it feels like to push yourself. And this is why when we taper, The intensity sticks, you know, the volume drops substantially, but we keep the intensity because we don't want people to forget or, you know, get distance on what it's like to hurt, to, to really work hard. And I think this carries out of those recovery weeks, unfortunately. And when you try to assess that day coming straight out of a recovery week, I'm not entirely sure people are going to always perform to their potential. And for that reason, I've recommended doing 
kind of a warm up ride. Um, like the day prior or maybe even two days prior, but I think honestly the day prior is going to better serve athletes, especially if they keep it short and comparatively low stress. So you don't have to gut yourself, but do something that is maybe a handful of five minute intervals at in the intensity you think you're going to chase the next day. And you might not be on track. They might be particularly difficult because you just, you're not really ready to work that hard, but come the next day, having done that workout, that, that kind of mental prep, um, I've, I've seen better performances. I've experienced better performances. Um, typically, sometimes I, I recover for a Saturday race. I don't race well, but man, I come Sunday and I should be tired and I should underperform and I have my best race. My best races almost always take place on Sundays after a hard Saturday race. Um, so the second issue is uh, you, you kind of did cheat in the sense that we're trying to measure <laughs> steady state output and you're not, you're not being steady state. You're taking it easy, then you're going hard, taking it easy, then you're going hard. So effectively you're doing an interval workout and you're, you're, you're uh, artificially inflating your, your sustain, what, what's supposed to be a measure of your sustainable power. So it's not actually sustainable power. The, um, that on and that having that kind of opener, Jonathan and I were just talking about this yesterday as, uh, I used to do, um, there's a race series in California, Saturday and Sunday. So Saturday would be a sprint triathlon and Sunday would be the Olympic one. And I'd actually do better overall on that Olympic race. And, um, sometimes I'd have my run split be the same that it would be on the, um, so the 10 K per minute mile pace would be the same what I had as the five K per minute mile pace. <laughs> and I, I would come into it thinking like, Oh my gosh, I feel kind of horrible, but I'd actually would ride better. And, uh, Dave, our videographer who made the, the chase, the Rossi video, he does stage races in Asia and he says, how many, how many days stage races does he do? Like there, he's some done of as long like as seven, seven days. Yeah. yeah. He says, as you get further into it, you feel horrible, like getting into it. But when you start riding, you actually feel better. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed the same thing. So in fact, this year, a lot of people at mountain bike national championships were freaking out because we had short track and anybody that knows about short track, it's like a crit on a mountain, but every there's peril around every turn. Cause it's, it's usually, they've got some technical stuff and at mammoth, it was really tough and you're above 9,000 feet. So it's like a recipe for just blowing yourself up and getting really exhausted. And, um, I took a risk and, and used it because I had always found the same thing what Nate just mentioned. And it proved extremely beneficial for the more, I should, or at least for me personally, the more important race that I had following that, which was the Olympic discipline. So much the, better. The other thing that, um, let's see, based on his, uh, his question is I just did a eight minute test and I, you know, I started it my heart rate was way higher than it should have been in the warm up, And I was like, oh my gosh. I am going to, this is going to be horrible. And the heart rate was kind of like, it was freaking me out because at my power and heart rate, I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to test really well. This is bad. I just did some endurance rides and had my heart rate below 130. And then I was at the same power from the endurance ride at the beginning of the workout. My heart rate was like 150. Like this isn't going to work. But I just listened back to coach Chad in my, he was in my head and uh, I just ignored it. And my, my FTP went up 52 Watts. And that sounds like a lot for you guys, but this is because I, some of you might've known my FTP was a paltry 200. And for a guy my size, that was really bad. Um, that's just because I took a long time off. So I, in the office, I kind of said, it's like, it's like a obese person losing 50 pounds. It's, it's good, but it's not yeah. like it's if, if you were Chad, um, Jonathan, you guys get 10 pounds on your FTP or 10 Watts on your FTP. That's amazing. But my yeah. point is, is I, um, Sometimes it, you come in, and this might not be the, the case for Ben, but you come into a workout and you think, oh, I can't do this. My heart rate's too high. I'm feeling horrible. Just try like as hard as you can, and you could surprise yourself. 
Uh, yeah. you, you probably will. So his next, his point where he kept going up and down, and before I even read this, I thought about, I bet this is, he's got something going on with gearing. Mm-hmm. And he said, my gravel grinder type bike has a monster 11 to 36 cassette, which by the way, it's monster, I guess, but it's, it's actually not that monster anymore these days. It's cool mm-hmm. to see everyone using them. Um, and that's, that's been typical mountain bike gearing for the past few years, but so the gaps are kind of big. Uh, I definitely wanted something between the two gears to hit a steady power. Would it be a better plan to flip to erg mode and move the target power to something I could hold? Um, uh, pro- yeah, what do you think, Chuck? Probably not, Ben. I think some people can pull this off. I think you could assess in erg mode if you really knew your capabilities and you knew how to adjust the workout intensity and, and you kept pushing yourself and finding that spot where you truly leveled off. So I think it can be done. It could probably be done pretty well if you if you have a real good grasp on it. I think for most people, though, it's going to uh, kind of miss the point of what assessment's supposed to be about. Agreed. It's inserting a variable in there that, like Chad said, unless you pretty much know exactly what your FTP is is and you're not <laughs> and you know how to perform there and, and how to pace it extremely well, it's going to be tough to get a per, you know a more accurate FTP with that method. So for those of you who don't know what erg mode is, um, <laughs> Ben has a Wahoo kicker, and erg mode means that uh, pretty much trainer row tells your trainer lock you in at let's say 200 watts, and then no matter what gear Ben is in or what cadence he has, it's going to adjust the resistance on the fly. So he's always hitting 200 watts. So he could drop his cadence down to 70. He could be in his biggest gear or in his smallest gear, and it's always going to lock him in. And what we do is during the assessment periods, we, we change it to what's called resistance. So it's just a steady resistance. It's a, it's a flat slope resistance. So Ben would have to actually shift kind of like he was on a, a fluid trainer or a mag trainer and try to put out as much power as he can. So what Ben was asking is, well, what if instead of me adjusting it, I just go to erg mode and I keep, you know, um, raising the target. So I say, I'm going to target exactly 250 watts for this FTP test interval. And the kicker is going to keep me there. And I'm just going to, you know, it's going to pace. It's pretty much going to pace for me. And what Chad said is that if you, if you pace that wrong, it could be really bad. Yeah. Not, not representative of what you can actually do. It could blow you up. It could um, kind of hold you under your actual ceiling. Yeah. And, and one thing too, that I would recommend is, I don't know if you have a spare wheel, Ben, um, it's not a luxury that, that, that all of us have, but if you have a spare wheel, throw on something like an 11 or 12, 25, 21, 21. Yeah. Yep. Throw on a tight cassette there. And that can really help, um, with indoor training. Um, not obviously for outside, you're on a gravel grinder, you're looking at steep stuff, but for indoor training, keep in mind, unless you're trying to emulate the exact inertia that you'd be experiencing outside going up climbs with the low gear, I'd recommend running a, a tighter cassette. Um, those seem to be increasingly uh, more rare and have less you know, application out in the real world, but this is one situation where I think they're really still beneficial. Yeah, here at Trainer Road, we have a very old wheel. I probably wouldn't ride it outside at all, but I have a, um, a trainer tire on it and 1121. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just used to be on fluid trainers so that you get really tight gear shifting. And it, yeah, I actually use an 1121 for flat time trials and pretty flat crits, and it works really well. I mean, the, the, each tick between gears is almost imperceptible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For mountain biking, gravel grinding, not quite as important. So um, this next question, and we may have already answered this one, so I'll read through it, um, and we can see if we touch on it. But uh, this is my first year on a kicker. He previously used a Kirk Kinetic Robe machine, and that's a fluid trainer. Um, in fact, it's the fluid trainer that we generally recommend because it has a very good very good resistance curve or power curve. And, and other, when what we mean by that is that 
it's very it's close to what you would experience when you're no. riding outside and it doesn't fluctuate. No, it's what it is is it's it's they have really good manufacturing tolerances, so each one's the same between road machines and um, it's stable with it doesn't change viscosity as it, the heat increases. So if you're going at 300 watts, the fluid, the viscosity of the fluid is still the same, so it doesn't change the power curve at all. And we've tested this with machines. We just did another test. Chad had three power meters. An in-ride one and in-ride two and virtual power and uh, the virtual in-ride two is they're just like virtual power but it was it was spot on and it stayed stable and tracked closely to all three power meters for the entire test. Yeah, and, and I it's, some problems that people are wary of with fluid trainers is leaking the actual fluid unit leaking and I don't think we've ever seen a road machine no, leak. It can't mm-hmm. because so <laughs> get a little techie here but the the road machine has two separate changes that are com- chambers that are completely sealed and uh, the way that they uh, the way that the flywheel turns the fan inside of the fluid is magnets. So there's actually uh, it's it's pretty smart is. It doesn't actually have the flywheel, doesn't go through anything to like a sleeve to go into the chamber that has the fluid. There's just a magnet really strong that turns the, the flywheel for you. Plus, they have a great lifetime warranty. You, anything's wrong with that thing, you just email them and they'll they'll fix it. Yeah, yeah, great trainers. He says, and I find the kickers conditioning me towards a higher cadence. I unconsciously seem to spin faster and find that to be and find that easy pedaling. If I want to lower the cadence and push harder, I find the pause on the kicker awkward. And I think that what he's meaning is the f- fact that it's constantly applying resistance. No, um, it's, it's the uh, it's the flywheel. So I, if it it'll spin really fast, and if you lower your cadence, uh, it will it it has to wait until the flywheel slows down a little bit. And yeah, maybe you, that's you what he's talking. You about. can't pedal during that time. I know exactly what he's talking about. In some ways, I like the manual instant change of the gears and power on the kinetics. So first of all, the the conditioning towards a higher cadence, we've all noticed that, right? Um, that, that tends to happen, or people report that regularly. At least I, I've noticed that. Yeah. Um, and that's not, Chad, what are your thoughts on that? Does that? Is that detrimental to your performance outside? No, I think everybody should move toward a quicker spin up to a point. I mean, I've seen guys, and I'm, I'm kind of in this boat where if I, if I spend a race pretty much above 100 RPM, at least when I'm pedaling, and I try not to pedal uh, that entire time. But uh, if I keep my spin quick, I'm, I'm fresher for the end of it. it it's, just, it's just less taxing on your muscles. So um, anybody, especially riders who are struggling with an 80 to 85 sort of RPM, should really strive to push that closer to 90, up to 95. Whether you go any higher than that, you know, you can decide at that point if it suits you. But um, I'm, I'm from the school of thought that anything between 95 and 105 RPM is, is typically optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, one tip that I would share, because I, I sympathize with you a lot on this one, um, I, I, I personally, I, I do the majority of my workouts on, on a kicker, but I still like to go back to the road machine every once in a while. There's something mental, I guess, some, some strange thing, I guess, about being proactive about adjusting the resistance. I think sometimes you kind of wait for it to become somewhat reactive. And if you're out on the road and you're waiting for anything to happen, you're the person that gets dropped. Right. And you have to be proactive and be ready to, to respond to those things. So uh, maybe that's just the type of mentality that I find slipping away. Sometimes if I spend too much time on the electronic trainer, that could just be me. Um, one thing that I've noticed is, so I, I do all of my training on the kicker in a low gear. Um, so I'm, I'm down in my little ring if I'm on the road bike and I'm way up the cassette onto the bigger cogs. And I've found actually that that does, um, 
that can the whole conditioning towards a higher cadence factor is less this year. Um, You're not going to get that same drop that he had or as much because the flywheel spinning more slowly. Exactly. So you're going to feel that you're going to feel as if your cadence adjusts, you're going to feel the resistance change very quickly. Um, so, and that, that's helped me at least, uh, get away from, because I already have a very high cadence, like on a normal, like on a crit, I have 100 or just above a hundred pretty normally. Um, and in a mountain bike race, I have up into the mid nineties, um, high nineties. So I don't necessarily, I, I don't feel like I need to raise my cadence anymore, uh, intentionally. So that's what I do to help with that. Yeah, and then Ben, I actually a while back put together a, a help help center post on this very thing that when you when you make changes um, on a a smart trainer in erg mode, just anticipate them. So if you're going to slow to get out of the saddle, take five seconds to go from 90 RPM down to 70 RPM and then rise. And the same thing with just slowing down, even if you're staying seated, just take a couple seconds. Know that the kicker is going to have to adjust its resistance based on your new cadence and just give it a couple seconds to do that and it'll probably seem less disruptive the next question is from owen he says first off love trainer road it's a great program my question is primarily based around the estimation of tss for workouts that do not have a power meter handy for example outdoor rides on my cross-country bike where i have no power meter or other activities such as cross-country skiing and our engineer actually from australia brad just asked me this question last night so listen up brad i'm sure you're listening um with the fine tuning of training, with the training and life balance, I found myself needing to substitute a training ride or trainer ride for another activity from time to time. I try to make the substitution for a ride like Petite. That's um, one of the, and he calls it a TSS filler, and essentially it's a lower intensity ride. Um, but on occasion, it has been a workout requiring intensity. As a bit of a research junkie, um, comes from a degree in exercise physiology that he has. He notes. A while back, I found a chart from Joe Friel's blog that made high-level estimates of TSS per hour based on heart rate ranges. It is essentially as follows, and I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Uh, you guys can check that out. Um, and if you just look it up, um, estimating TSS on the training Bible for by Joe Friel, you'll see it. So, um, so his question is, what do you think of this approach for those times when you can't always hit the scheduled spot and need to make some estimations? Any or any insights would be greatly appreciated. Cheers, Owen. Yeah, oh, and I've looked that over, and it seems reasonable to me, seems feasible, and if anything, it's consistent. So um, I don't know if I tie it so heartily to, or tightly to heart rate, you know, different days, different heart rates, um, or it might, it might affect that TSS value a bit, but it's something, and it allows you to keep a decent grasp on the extra training you're doing that you can't really quantify uh, with, with TSS that comes directly from power output. So uh, I've really got nothing beyond what Joe offers. I think it's a, a valid way to go. And as an FYI for people, for those that want to nerd out, I'll read out essentially what Joe says. He says, TSS equals, equals seconds, uh, in other words, duration of the workout in seconds, times your normalized power, times your IF, and then that's divided by your FTP times 3,600, and then multiplied by 100. So those for all the nerds to geek out there, that's what you got. So... Um, just keep in mind with this one that once again, if you're dealing with any type of power meter indoors and then you're dealing with heart rate in other situations, you're always going to be dealing with the very variable nature of heart rate. So, um, Jason, hi guys. I've been a dedicated user of what I consider the excellent and best cycling train th training aid there is bar none. I like this guy. We should pay him. Um, my question is about using speed walking as training. I love to use trainer road for the structured and shorter duration workouts as I don't think this is the place to do endurance work of a slow, steady pace. 
Whilst I do carry out some endurance cycling on the road, I like to walk a lot and incorporate fast walking on some very fast walking intervals into the session. In your expert opinions, as the best coaches for cycling that there are, he's, he's kissing up to us, isn't he? Um, yeah. Do you consider walking of this nature as an endurance building and maintaining tool? Also, can normal walking be used as active recovery training during the days after breaking or after um, breakthrough or hard threshold or VO2 max sessions? Your ideas and advice always make uh, very addictive listening to me, and I look forward to the podcast. Regards, Jason from the UK. And just as an FYI to everybody, we aren't using Jason's question because he kissed up to us, although mm-hmm. we're flattered. Um, we think it's an interesting question. So, yeah, Jason, in terms of cross training, I think you could do worse. Um, I, and, and you're actually incorporating a bit of intensity into it. Uh, I don't know that I would substitute speed walking workouts for cycling workouts because of the lack of specificity. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the more time you devote to something like running, the less time you're devoting to cycling. So if cycling is your key focus, then, you know, it is probably going to come at a bit of a detriment to it. But if you're doing it just to kind of mix things up um, and maybe you're you know, particularly passionate about speed walking or just walking in general, I don't see any problem with it, especially when it comes to the active rest days. Um, if that's what gets you out there doing something that constitutes active rest when the idea of getting on the bike just seems awful and, and maybe you won't end up doing it, then in that case, uh, I ab- am absolutely for it. Yeah. In a, in a perfect world, Chad, we'd all be on the bike probably seven days a week, <laughs> eating the exact yeah. right food, <laughs> Excuse me, sleeping high and training low doing all the glycogen stuff that we need to, getting all the cooling, getting the, we were talking later, right before this about, this isn't proven out yet, so don't uh, don't go by a sauna, but getting a sauna after your high intensity intervals. <clears throat> but in the real world, one of your major factors is, in the Rossi video he says this, cycling is incredibly mental. And mm-hmm. if you don't have some of this, well, some people don't need the cross training, but if you love some of this cross training stuff, um, like someone loves to want to do a half marathon. That's a goal for theirs. Don't mm-hmm. you will be a faster cyclist and a better athlete in general in ten years if you're loving what you're doing and you're mixing it up than just being like I'm going to be the the you know the most dedicated hardest guy. Then and now some people too like Rossi. He wants to win a national TT championship. Um, that's what his passion is, and he's going to just stick to that. But. It's it's not going to help your cycling um, fitness necessarily to do any of this other cross training, but it will help your mental state if it's something that you're passionate about. Um, another way too, like I'm a triathlete. Um, during triathlons, I do road racing because that's all, you could race a lot more. And now I just want to focus on mountain biking, and I am so excited to go into mountain biking. It's like a whole new realm for me, um, and it's probably not going to help my triathlon TT. It will some. But it's not gonna like I I would be faster if I just focused on triathlons every year. But that was I was getting a little burnt out on it, so I wanted to switch it around a little bit. And I'm doing a little bit of weightlifting in there too. And I know the weightlifting is not gonna make me any faster on the bike, but I'm 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 feeling better, and it's okay if I'm gonna be a couple seconds slower every lap on my mountain bike because it's uh, I'm enjoying it more, and I'm gonna stick with it longer. So yeah, couldn't agree more. Says the slowest guy on the podcast. <laughs> the, the other two guys are just rolling their eyes. They're like, no. That's fine for you, Nate. Whatever. They're, they're yeah, in their yeah, kits yeah. right now. They're actually riding. <laughs> they're endurance riding. Um, Adam, friends of mine use a coach who is vehemently opposed to erg mode training. He claims that it harms training in three ways. Number one, that the nature of erg resistance increases the risk of repeated use injuries during training. And this, I think this is number two, and it relates to that. He says, because it eliminates a rider's ability to exceed the watt ceilings of a given workout, 
Okay, that's unrelated. And then number three, that it reduces workout focus, which provides a training benefit in and of itself. What do you all think of these concerns? Are you aware of quality or of quality studies validating the link between erg mode and repeated use injuries? Yeah, um, this is going to sound horribly biased, but I, I can't agree with a single one of these. And I, 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 I do plan to research this. I'm going to see if I can find anything that uh, supports or refutes these you know, suppositions. Uh, the, the first one, um, repeated use injuries, uh, erg workouts by their nature are typically pretty short. Uh, repeated use injuries come with, I think, higher volume. Um, so I don't, I don't see the correlation there. And, um, and to add to that really quick, Chad, because yeah. I, 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 I deal with tight hips and tight knees. I've mentioned that before on the podcast, and I deal with knee issues all the time. And I use an erg trainer, and I actually – so – if you're the type of person that rides at like 40 RPM, maybe, which is pretty rare, <laughs> if you're that type of person and you're constantly fighting that that huge resistance that you're having to back up in order to hit your power target, may, I mean, it's tough to even say that that would be the case. But in most cases, like what we were talking about earlier, these things train you to spin a little quicker and have a little less stress on your joints, you know, it, I should say force that you're having to put out. So. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's a really uh, number one is well, a solid point there. Two, two, it says that the the rider's ability to exceed the wattage ceiling of a given workout. Uh, the workouts are generally it's not going to be like, hey Chad, go do 220 for three hours. These are like interval structured workouts. So you're going all over the place. Sometimes you know every 15 seconds you're changing. So uh, it's, all we're also, it's all prescribed. It's all specific. And the workouts are pretty tightly structured too. I mean, we very much don't want you exceeding those ceilings because different physiological adaptation or stimuli are, are, are applied and different adaptations occur. So we're we want you to limit. We want to have that ceiling to to a large extent when we're doing most of these interval workouts. I think a lot of people think that it, during their intervals. So like they'll set out. I see this all the time when you're on the road with somebody and they're like, "Yeah, I got to do VO twos today." So they set out to start their VO twos and you know their FTPs at like 280 and they're at like 500 watts for like a minute or two. And th they try to keep that going on. They end up just dropping back down yeah. to a more reasonable range above it. You know it's just going as hard as you can. Intervals don't mean go as hard as you can. And I know that we all say we know that, but in practice, many times we don't follow it. And that's one of the beauties of having an erg trainer with, you know, something like trainer road or something that gives you structured work. A lot of the success in structured training comes from the structure and the precision. It's following everything to a T that's in fact, we've even talked about that Nate, like internally, like you know, if you were to compare people's workouts, the person that wins isn't the person that puts out a harder workout. The person that wins is the person that's more precise, sticks to the targets with precision. Yeah. The, the, the third thing he says about workout focus, it can reduce your workout focus, but as long as you're doing your workout, I wouldn't be concerned. Like, so I love watching, I'm watching Jessica Jones right now, which is a Netflix thing about a Marvel superhero. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, but I'm almost done with that. And my focus when I'm doing my sweet spot training isn't so much on the workout. I mean, I know I'm in an interval and I'm hitting it, but I can also watch the, the TV show while I'm working out. And I'm still get hitting all my wattages. So I, I guess I'm, if, if I wasn't, so if, if my lack of focus, like if I couldn't complete the workout because I was watching TV, then I probably should just turn the TV off. But I, I can, and I have the bill. I can do VO two max workout still and have TV on in the background. And you know, I'll be when He's those crazy. last, those last 30 <laughs> seconds where I'm digging deep, I probably am not paying attention, but then during all the rest periods, I'm thoroughly entertained and I look forward to workouts because I get to watch, you know, all of breaking bad, all of game of Thrones, <laughs> NFL games. It's, 
I have kids, so like you can't watch Game of Thrones in the living room. <laughs> but and I can. I can at work. Just for a second, step back to that second one where he talks about how it eliminates the writer's ability to exceed watt ceilings of a given workout. If, for instance, you're doing a VO2 max workout and maybe you've underassessed your FTP, maybe you've seen improvements in FTP, and the workout just isn't as challenging as you know you can can handle. There's nothing keeping you from from elevating the workout intensity. You can make changes on the fly. You can do it mid interval. You can do it in between intervals. So you're not, the ceiling's not exactly a ceiling. It's just sort of a limit that's telling you work harder than this. And you're not going to be able to gain the derived benefit that we're trying to impart via this workout. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it's all about precision. And to Nate's point there, I don't know if you're this way, Chad, but I could never do that. Like I can't have any other stimulus going on. I have music. No, I did. I did one minute efforts on Monday. I did two minute efforts yesterday. And my focus is on nothing but the power output. And, and we're on electronic how much pain I'm in. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah in erg mode. And yep. in fact, I, I have better workouts. In fact, Monday I did it not in erg mode. I did it using power match yesterday. I did it in erg mode. I had a better workout because of it. Yeah. And you uh, listen to music, Chad? I have to have music. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's, it's motivating. It's not distracting. I'm still staring at the watts, staring at that timer, just waiting for those, <laughs> those final 10 seconds to, to cruise by. Chad, do you work out? Do you keep your own workout text up? So like you're talking to yourself. <laughs> I, I don't, but I actually write workout text. I have a yellow pad that's in my rafters. I work out in the basement and I've got, you know, an open ceiling down there and I reach up and I grab that pad and I jot something down and it's barely legible. Lately, I've actually started grabbing the phone and taking voice memos. So I, I don't read my text. I mean, I wrote it. I know this stuff, but I do actually write new text. <laughs> I just, I just, it tickles me to think you're like, come on, Chad, hang in there. Love Chad. You can do this. Chad, you're the best. Love Chad. Uh, Nick, uh, he says, hi guys. I was wondering if you could give the podcast listeners a sneak peek into what you are planning in regard to integrating outdoor riding into trainer road. Living in Brisbane, Australia. I hope, did I say that right? Brisbane, 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 Brisbane. I'm, I'm an, I'm a regular Aussie right there. Um, I can ride outside every day of the year, unless it is pouring with rain. So it can be tough to make the decision to stay indoors on the trainer. It'd be great to be able to track my outdoor workouts through trainer road as well as I love the way you guys present the data. I love the app and podcast. Thanks a lot. So go ahead. Um, yeah. So What's coming out, I, I always struggle with this because we have big plans. I want to share them, but it always takes us longer because we're, we're not a funded company. We're bootstrapped. So the money you guys give us, we get to hire more employees and then we get to execute things more quickly. And uh, so the basically what we want you to be able to do is to follow a training plan inside and outside um, and to execute against that plan and make sure that if... Let's say you do your weekend weekend rides on a Sunday and they're endurance rides and they're uh, two hours outside, you can make sure that counts inside of Trainer Road. Now, there's many steps to get there. Um, we're going to hopefully be releasing an initial step in the next couple of weeks. And then we have a website step. And then uh, as we get farther through, there's, I'm being pretty vague, there's more steps. <laughs> uh, but... It's definitely one of our uh, big pillars of, um, of things that we want to get done. And we have some killer ideas for personal records that we want to get out. And then also the uh, Mac, revamping the Mac. And then Android users, like we are, I know you guys want it so bad. And we want it so bad. We, we, because we have a shared code base, the, all the bugs that we're fixing right now in the, um, that we, uh, 
are fixing in the windows app that we just released that is helping you and we're improving our device layer and stuff so it makes the execution of when we get to android that much faster and that, so even though it doesn't it sounds like android um like we don't care about android we, we very much care about android and we're doing all the work necessary for it to make sure that when we do the actual ui part of it it goes extremely fast so i was sorry that's a it's like a politician. I should run for president, right? <laughs> Let me not answer Let's... that question. There are many steps. I have a five-point plan. Step one, two, three, four, five. There you go. Nate, Nate even had a Bernie Sanders hand going on the whole time. There. Did I That's move pretty... my hands like Bernie Sanders? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve. Good morning. While riding to LAC, that's one of our workouts. And by the way, that's an iconic peak at Lake Tahoe. I'm sure if you've looked up pictures of Lake Tahoe, it might be that. Interesting fact. So, uh, Fun fact. First date with my wife was climbing Mount Talac. Hmm. There we are. Check it out. Uh, while riding to LAC this morning, the text kept mentioning focusing on lower abdominal core strength. Could you point me in any direction for some, uh, for some sample exercises or a program to follow to ensure I develop my core as best as possible? Yeah, Steve, happily. Um, I'm going to point you in the same direction I point everybody uh, having read this book because it is uh, my, my favorite resource. Um, and it's Tom Danielson's Core Advantage. Um, it's him and I think it's Allison Westfall. It's, uh, it might be Allison, but there's two L's, so I'm going to go with Allison. Um, extremely knowledgeable and a really well put together book. And I'm only going to be able to touch on things. And if I just try to describe any exercises to you, it's not going to come across very well verbally. So um, take a look at that book. Uh, it, it's it, it's quite a read. It's highly informative, but there's a lot of good exercises and uh, just a, a really great resource in terms of core development. Is there anything anything outside of that book that you that you have done or do? And Nate, uh, this goes yeah. to it's I I come from a background of um, personal training and performance coaching, etc. And it, the the one that comes to mind are pelvic tilts. So just just laying on the ground, learning how to depress your lumbar spine and, and then and then elevate it, and and then learning how to tip your hips independently of low back movement, and then how to incorporate them. But in, in any case, you're you're, you're trying to gain a, a stronger position on the saddle. So without a, actually concentrating on keeping your sit bones anchored, you want that to come more naturally. And those are muscles that really just have to be woken up. It doesn't take some intensive training. It's more of a um, neuro uh, physiological sort of activity. But once it's there, once those communication lines are opened up, it's so much easier to get in touch with what you're actually trying to achieve. And the better you get at that, the less you actually have to think about it. Scott, he says, Hey guys, I've been using trainer road with the kicker for about a year. As I've said in other correspondence, I think your products, training plans, podcasts are all outstanding. Being a research engineer, I, I especially appreciate that they're data-based. Um, I'm 57 years old, a cyclist and runner since 1980, though I only bike now due to knee risk and did semi-structured training during my prime racing years. Of course, my body doesn't respond to training as it once did. Warm-ups and recovery take longer. For instance, my FTP is currently 288, and I'm moving through the sweet spot base 2 plan. So he says, number one, I struggle with VO2, mark, VO2 work, max workouts like the billets, and billets are a specific type of interval structure, right, Chad? Do you want to explain that really quick? Yeah, they're usually just equal rest um, or equal work rest. So if you work for 30 seconds, you rest for 30 seconds. Um, if you work for a minute, you rest for, for a minute. An example done at VO2 max intensity, so 115, 120% threshold. And an example of this is in Junction, that workout, or Barnard. Um, and he says the sustained chunks in Morgan. I, I love Morgan, by the way. That's one of my favorite workouts. And I'm in the middle of Sweet Spot Base right now, and I just cannot wait until I can do 
that stuff. Um, that sounds weird. I can't wait for under over unders and high intensity stuff, but, um, I seem to do better around threshold. He says, number two, my FTP hasn't advanced like others, uh, like other, uh, customers or other of our users have report. He said it's only moved from 270 to 288 over the past year. Um, which don't feel bad about that, by the way, Scott, um, Chad and I are fighting for, for small Watts. So to, Mm -hmm. to get up, um, I live in a hilly area and ride with others sporadically. My goal is simply to stay as fit as possible as measured by my performance on all my routes. Nothing's flat or where he lives. He says the routes are composed of rollers and longer grades of seven to 10% and four to 4,500 feet of elevation gain over 35 to 45 miles is typical. So the questions, is it likely that my FTP and ability to push VO2 max have topped out given my age? Yeah, very probably. At, at 57, you're past that point where you're going to see that annual decline. And it sounds like you're you know, staying pretty active and consistent with your training. So I'm sure you're mitigating that decline quite nicely. But the fact of the matter is, it's only going to go down. Um, and and, and your, I don't know what your body weight is, but a, 280, a 288 watt threshold at 57 years of age That's is good. downright, That's downright impressive. That's, so yeah. if you're already sustaining that at, at threshold power, then working 10, 15, 20% above that during VO2 max repeats might be a, a little outside of your wheelhouse anymore. I, I would trim the intensity on those just a little bit to figure out how you can hang, um, you know, get through those intervals successfully. It might be done at 110% now. There, there's nothing wrong with that. You're still achieving a lot of the adaptation we're looking for, and you're still working at a really high aerobic uptake, which is the, the crux of the matter. So, so try trimming that and see how those things go. But you might be you might have an FTP that's pushed so far towards your VO2 max ceiling that you're not going to see big changes from this point out. And I, I hate that that might sound mildly discouraging, but the fact of the matter is you're still quite fit. The, the second question he asks is kind of a common one in, in one respect. He says, is any general adjustment to sweet spot base, sustained power build and climbing road race recommended? That's mm. contextual, right, Chad? Yeah, well, it, I think in, in this, yeah, it is. And in this context, um, he talks about... Uh, warm-ups are longer recoveries take longer those would be the the changes i would recommend so the the structure of, of sweet spot into sustained power into climbing road race that's all good and fine but you may find you have to restructure those weeks and that you work for two and then you slot in a recovery week and then for a couple more you may find that you have to actually modify these intervals and whether that means pausing the workout or backpedaling infrequently but here and there or actually putting them in the workout creator and making a three minute recovery, a five minute recovery, things of that nature, you know, figure out how, again, you can successfully navigate these workouts. And that probably is going to require a bit more recovery, a bit more forgiveness. And keep in mind what we're, we're not, we're not making a, I hope that it doesn't feel like we're making a big deal out of your age, Scott. Um, I mean, Chad and I were just on a ride the other day and he was mentioning the fact that He's been testing out some different training theories and some rest work theories, and he's just mm-hmm. found that. And Chad's Chad uh, Chad's not at, at your age, but he said that he's noticed that it's taken him longer. Um, so yeah, he's in, making in general, and I've you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be 44 in just a couple of days here, and so you know I've I've got a, a ways before I reach your age, but I'm I'm seeing the, the differences for sure. And I used to be able to do a hard Tuesday workout, easy Wednesday ride, hard Thursday workout, and they'd both be uh, identically productive. I mean, so close that, that, that I didn't think twice about it. Now it has to be more like a hard Monday workout, a really easy Tuesday workout, a moderate Wednesday workout, and then a hard Thursday workout. I have to have closer to 72 hours in between those hard workouts, whereas it used to be closer to 48. Great. 
All right, that covers it for this week's questions. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Um, once again, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Please leave us a review if you like it, and you can submit your questions to us, support at trainerroad.com. We'll go through the queue and pull out as many that we can listen, to, or as many as we can answer for next week's show. Uh, so the, once again, guys, thanks for joining us, and train hard. Enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.